We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal dis- On today's show, the topic is the Supreme Court of the United States of America and its recent rulings, school choice, separation of church and state, Carson-Macon, Roe v. Wade, the dignity of children and their right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. All of this is in play. We're seeing this as a historic moment in our country. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Oh, there's so much that we need to be talking about. I know when I wrote my article this past Friday morning for The Washington Times, it was before the official decision was announced on Roe v. Wade, and therefore my article that shows up is old news because I chose to write about the Supreme Court, but the decision I was writing about was Carson and Macon its decision on school choice and religious freedom. And I'll talk about that again today because, I mean, it just took place this past week, but like I said, Roe v. Wade has just overshadowed everything right now, and perhaps rightfully so. But all of these decisions are coming out of the Supreme Court of the United States, and they all reflect upon the philosophy of these justices and what they think of our Constitution, what they think of tradition, reason, experience, and revelation. This is why we're talking about this stuff right now, because as C.S. Lewis told us, you have to have a measuring rod outside of those things being measured, or you can do no measuring. And in the United States, that measuring rod has essentially been the Constitution, undergirded and built upon a biblical worldview. And that's what I want to talk about today. We have justices. Right now, apparently, we have five, and sometimes when Roberts decides to get his head out of his rear end, we have six that actually believe that the Constitution is an objective standard, a measuring rod outside of everything being measured when it comes to the laws of the United States of America. That the Constitution is static. It doesn't change. It's not like Play-Doh. You can't just push it and manipulate it and mold it into something that it's not. It says what it says, and that the justices are charged with enforcing what it says. And, and they just don't have the right to change it and make up stuff out of whole cloth that doesn't exist within the Constitution. And if the Constitution says we've got religious freedom, we have religious freedom, and it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't like that. If you live in the United States, you have religious freedom. The Anti-Establishment Clause, the First Amendment, these things mean something. The state is, to, is supposed to stay out of the church's business. We'll talk about that on today's show, the separation of church and state. And then another thing I want to talk about is the response of Christians, pastors, evangelical leaders to this Roe v. Wade decision. Some responses are spot on and some responses are just downright shallow and poorly reasoned, to say the least. And I'm going to share with you one of those responses from a young Wesleyan pastor who 
I just can't believe he said what he said. I mean, it's just so foolish. It's it's frankly just the, one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read his comment to you, and then I'm going to share with you my response. So I'm gonna be uh, all over the place a little bit after we take a break, but all over the place within the context of talking about the Supreme Court of the United States of America and a couple of recent decisions, and be thinking about our history, our our tradition, our reason, our experience, and our belief in revelation, our belief that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. In other words, we don't make this stuff up. It's given to us by God, not created by government or you or me. It's not about political power. It's about the eternal principles upon which our country is built. And without those principles, we have no country. And I'll share with you some quotes from the Founding Fathers, the Framers, as Justice Sotomayor recently called them. And we'll also talk about Roe v. Wade. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. Let's deal with uh, Carson versus Macon first. I talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to use it as a, uh, as a platform upon which to build a discussion on Roe v. Wade. I'll try to hit on both of these, okay? We need to do it very quickly. So this past week, the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, they, they actually, uh, with Roberts' uh, concurrence, in fact, he wrote for the majority something that was, I believe, very sound. Now, I think Roberts is a problem, and I think his uh, equivocation, his mushy response to the Roe v. Wade decision is just as confusing as all get out. But nonetheless, the majority... Uh, was very solid in Roe v. Wade. And like I said, we'll talk about that in just a second. But in Carson versus Macon, this is the case in the state of Maine over school choice and whether or not the citizens of Maine can use their tax dollars, their money. It's their money. It's not government money. The government just doesn't create this money. They, they take the money from citizens via taxation, and then they, the government, decides how to spend that money. But that money comes from the citizens. It's your money. It's my money. So the more laws we can create that give that money back to you so that you have the right to spend it as you see fit, the better off we are, in my view. But we need to make sure we craft that legislation so that the government can't tell you that you're penalized if you use your money for something that is consistent with your values, like sending your kids to a school that teaches the things that you believe in. And that if you don't want your kids indoctrinated by this lunacy, this anti-science, anti-human being, anti-woman, misogynistic, LGBTQIA, trans ideology, as well as the SJWCRT, BLM, political leftism, if you don't want your kids indoctrinated with that stuff, then you can choose to use your money to send your kids to a private school. And what are most of those private schools? Well, Predominantly, they're parochial, Catholic, or they're private, or Protestant. They're, they're either going to be evangelical or going to be Catholic in philosophy and foundation. That's what most of these schools are going to be. In other words, they're quote-unquote religious. Well, this lawsuit was over the question as to whether or not the citizens of Maine have the right to use their money to pay for a school that's consistent with their worldview, the way they think about things politically, sociologically, ontologically, epistemologically, theologically, and morally. Now, 
I, I, just stop for a moment and ask yourself, why would anybody presume to tell you you can't send your kids, your sons and your daughters, to a school that teaches things that you believe in, important things, unalienable rights, self-evident truths endowed to us by our Creator? Why would anybody presume to tell you you can't do that? Well, uh, in this decision, as I shared with you last week, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the majority that to exclude religious persons from the enjoyment of public benefits on the basis of their anticipated religious use of those benefits is a violation of the First Amendment. Standing ovation for Justice Roberts. Good for you. He went on to say, the state's anti-establishment interests do not justify enactments that exclude some members of the community from an otherwise generally available public benefit because of their religious exercise. What he's saying is that you can't be told not to use your social security check to pay your tithe at your church, or, or you can't be penalized by the state when it comes to a public benefit just because you have a religious view on how to use that benefit. Wouldn't it be frightening if they started telling you that other tax dollars, quote-unquote, again, it's your money, but that's the way they want to talk about it. Tax dollars are restricted in terms of the way you can use them because you're a Christian or you're a member of another faith. If you want to use your money to pay for something that is, quote-unquote, religious, you can't do so if that money comes back to you via the state. That's the argument here. So Roberts rightfully said, you can't exclude religious persons from those public benefits just on the basis of their anticipated religious use of those benefits. And they're talking about schools here. Well, Sotomayor disagreed. And she said, today the court leads us to a place of dismantling the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. Well, okay, like I asked last week, what is this wall? What's she, what's she talking about? What's she, what is she mourning? What, what, what is she mourning the loss of? Where did the wall come from, and what is its context? And Was it import, important to the framers that she talks about? Well, let's talk about a timeline here. Uh, this is something I've shared before. In 1776, Jefferson set the cornerstone for our republic. And on that cornerstone, he carved these words, We are created, we are equal, we're endowed by God, not government, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So here, Jefferson unequivocally declared that America's independence was built upon a religious understanding of our human origins, priorities, and purpose. That's pretty clear, right? We're endowed by our creator. That's a religious statement. Uh, we are equal. Well, who decided that? God did, not government. Okay, we have unalienable rights that are given to us by our Creator. We have, uh, un we have a natural understanding, self-evident truths, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Okay, so that's 1776. In 1791, Madison comes along and writes about the First Amendment. In fact, he crafted the, the First Amendment in 1791. And what does it say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free expression, exercise, excuse me, thereof. So Madison is telling us two basic things. First, he knew that the pursuit of happiness, i.e. meaning and purpose, that's what happiness meant to them, not just frivolous fun, but pursuing happiness, 
the opposite of haplessness, meaning and purpose. That's the business of the church, and that's something about the church and your own individual conscience. It's not something that has anything to do with the king or the courts, if you will. It's not their business. It's the business of the church. It's the business of the individual parishioner, the congregant of the church. Madison knew that. And second, Madison understood that Congress was the protector of this right. It wasn't its progenitor. What's progenitor? The initiator, uh, the starting point. So Madison's argument is pretty simple here. Government should never presume to define the matters of the church. Congress and the courts have no authority to establish or to dictate or prescribe or contradict religious belief. It's none of their business. Madison is making it clear that no governing body can direct or prohibit how a citizen expresses his or her faith, religion. In other words, he's saying that religion is not a secondary matter. It's not just something in your private thoughts. It's something that people live out daily. It's the way you believe as well as the way you behave. You live it out daily in the market square of life. And the government should leave the church alone when it comes to these things. It should never presume to tell people what to believe or how they can or cannot practice their faith. That's clearly what Madison is saying. Now, let's get back to Jefferson again. We've talked about this last week. Eleven years after the First Amendment is written by Madison, Jefferson comes back around again because now he's the third president of the United States, and there's a group of nervous Christians up in Danbury, Connecticut, at the Danbury Baptist Church, and they're afraid of government intrusion into their business. And Jefferson writes them a letter and says, don't worry about it. And he says in the letter, I contemplate with utmost reverence that act which declared that the legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then he concluded by adding his commentary, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. And it's from that letter that our courts get this separation, this wall language that Sotomayor is claiming we've torn down. Well, actually, no. Again, she's upside down. She doesn't get it. Jefferson's message here is unmistakable. The wall, yeah, he's saying there's a wall protecting church and state, but he's saying the wall protects the church from the state, not the state from the church. In other words, there is a wall. And the government is not to breach that wall. That's the point. The wall is not erected as a prison for the church, but as a fortress to protect the church. It exists to to give you and me the protection that that we need so that the government, the king, the courts, the Congress, they don't come in and start telling us what to do. So it's to protect the church, not to confine the church. That's my point here. Jefferson no more intended the wall to restrain the church than he intended his own walls of his own home to restrain him. Again, I used this analogy last week. Every house has a door, and you open the door from the inside to go out and do your business. Buy, sell, engage in culture, go to school, go to work, do your civic duty, and then you come home at night, you open the door, and you go back in behind the walls of your home. That home and its walls is not a prison. It's built to protect you, not to confine you. And it's the same thing with with the wall separating the church from the state. And the thing here is that the church holds the key to the door. 
The door is locked from the inside, not from the outside. Um, Jefferson was clearly telling these Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, that there was a wall separating the church from the state, but it was built for the church's benefit, not the government's. That's the point here. Now, Sotomayor would do well to listen to the framers that she says the conservatives are abandoning. So let, let's, let's, let's attend to some of the framers. John Adams said, Our Constitution is made only for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington, when he signed the Northwest Ordinance, said, Religion and morality are necessary to good government. James McHenry, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, said, The Holy Scriptures can alone secure to society order and peace and to our courts of justice and constitutions of government purity, stability, and usefulness. So we've got Adams talking about our Constitution only being for a moral and religious people and wholly inadequate to the government of any other. George Washington talking about religion and morality being necessary to good government. In other words, if you don't have religion and morality, you don't have good government. And then you have McHenry, one of the leaders, one of the framers, okay, founding father. She doesn't want to say that because, you know, she doesn't want to talk about gender-specific things, so she's calling them framers. James McHenry says the Holy Scriptures are the only thing that can secure to society, to the American people, order and peace, and to our courts of justice and constitutions of government, purity, stability, and usefulness. Pretty religious, isn't it? Pretty churchy for these guys to be saying that. Does it sound like they felt that the church should stay out of the business of the daily conversations of government? No, absolutely not. And de Tocqueville came along later and said, liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. So liberty and morality and faith are all tied together. Get rid of the church and you're not going to have liberty, is what de Tocqueville's saying. So here's my challenge to Sotomayor, and then we'll get into Roe v. Wade here in the last couple minutes. I, I think she'd do well to refresh her reading of the framers she now presumes to extol. Um, and if she did that, Maybe, if she had an open mind at all, which I doubt she does, but maybe she would then understand that the primary guardian of our constitutional freedoms is the wall of separation in church and state. But it's a wall that is grounded in biblical faith. And it's a wall that protects you and me from the government, not the government from you and me. It protects the church from the government, not the government from the church. That's what Jefferson was clearly saying. That's what the framers believed. All right, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's let's turn to the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe. All right, so they overturned it this past week. Now, you know that what they did is they just clarified the Constitution and that the Constitution does not make any provision for abortion. I mean, it's not there. I mean, they, Blackman just created it out of whole cloth. Everybody knows that. It's not there. Um, and for 50-some years, we've pretended that it is, and we've had 63 million children that have been killed at the hands of Planned Parenthood and whatnot, and whatnot as we have made this, as the left has made abortion a sacrament of their faith. Child sacrifice is now a sacrament of the Democrat Party. That is just as clear as the day is long. That's why I, if you call yourself a Christian Democrat, I just have to challenge you. How can you align yourself with a party that is hell-bent, and I use that word, those words intentionally, it's hell-bent on the execution of a child up till the point that it's being born, 
that it's moving through the birth canal. You can still kill it. Or now they're arguing that if it's not satient, that it can be killed thereafter. And that's a frightening thing. Um, and I, But we've been warning of this. We've been telling you that if it's okay to kill it when it's here um, in one location and it moves, the, the 30, 60 seconds later, it's moved by 21 inches, 24 inches, whatever the the distance is that it's moved to exit the birth canal, then why is it not okay to kill it then? The logical question prevails. All right. In response to this, there was a Wesleyan pastor up in South Dakota that wrote this, put it out on Twitter. It's shameful. Um, he says this, okay, Christians, we have a choice right now. The, the, this political victory for those who are pro-life isn't a victory for everyone. If we are really, truly for all life, let's be for those who who have all different perspectives on this issue. And let's truly love like Jesus. Let's be ready to stand with those who are hurting right now and truly be for them. Please, I am begging you, let's choose a posture that is truly pro-life and not just anti-abortion, close quote. Oh, this, this has to be one of the most poorly reasons, excuse me, poorly reasoned statements, comments I've heard on this thing to date. What the heck is he talking about? My first point would be this. Since when is saving the lives of millions of children considered simply a political victory? His language. Uh, This young church leader, as he fancies himself, might, might want to consider the untold boys and girls who are now being spared the fate of having their bodies torn asunder and their arms and their legs and their heads severed without even the benefit of anesthesia. Maybe think about the victory that they are enjoying or will enjoy. Isn't this a victory for these children? And isn't it more than a political victory? I would argue that it's a moral imperative and that it's not just a political discussion. I'm so sick of the progressives, the woke and the righteous, labeling something political when they don't like it, but yet it's justice and it's a moral imperative when they do like it. This is this is stunning that he would call this a political victory, and it, it's only a victory for one side, and he ignores the fact that we've got 60 million children who have been dismembered as the result of this atrocity. Isn't it a victory for those kids to stop this? And, and, and second, this pastor argues that all true Christians must now prove their pro-life credentials by being for those who have all different perspectives on this issue. That's his language. Well, really, would this same guy have argued that all who are opposed to the execution of Jews in the furnaces of Auschwitz should have proven their their, their street cred, uh, their... their um, uh, but, uh, Benai Breath street cred, their Anti-Defamation League street cred, by being for all those who were on different perspectives uh, perspectives of this issue? You, you get my point? I, I mean, and then how about slavery? Do, does this preacher believe that all Christians who stood against treating black people as chattel should have proven their abolitionist sincerity by being for those who had different perspectives on buying and selling and owning other human beings. I mean, he's a Wesleyan. Orange Scott and Luther Lee are the founders of his denomination. Maybe they should have 
chosen a better posture, uh, one that was not just anti-slavery, uh, you know, one that was for the hurting slave owner as much as the emancipated slave. I'm using this guy's language to expose the shallowness of his argument. Would he have, would he have called it a political issue rather than a moral one? If we were talking about antebellum slave owners and how they were hurting because of the loss of the Civil War, would he have begged those celebrating Juneteenth to tone it down a bit and stand with those who had lost the right to own a black man? I mean, this is just stunning. Or, or maybe this preacher thinks Elijah was wrong in his dealings with the priests of Baal. I mean, shouldn't he have been more affirming of the different perspectives on these issues when it came to worshiping God? I mean, calling down fire upon these priests just because they had different opinions? Um, <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, surely that's a bit harsh, isn't it? And how about all those repeated condemnations of uh, in the Old Testament of those practicing child sacrifice, those that were worshiping Moloch? handing over their children to be, to be burned in the furnaces uh, in worship to this fake God. You don't really take all this Old Testament stuff seriously, do you? I mean, it was a different time and a different day, and we're much smarter now. We believe in science, and we, knew, we know that women have the right to do whatever they want with their bodies, except when men pretend that they're women, and then women don't have the right to do anything with their bodies. I mean, upside down, upside down, woke nonsense to the extreme. And, and this, this bit about loving like Jesus. Well, I want to remind you that Jesus is God, and therefore the Old Testament is inspired by Jesus, written by Jesus. It's, it's, it's uh, the word of God. It's the word of Jesus. The Old Testament is just as much the words of Jesus as is the New Testament, creating two different gods, this modalism that somehow there's a harsh God of the Old Testament that exists, but then there's a nice affirming God that comes along in the New Testament, and we've got two different gods. This is not Christianity. So when we love like Jesus, we've got to love like the Old Testament and the New Testament. We, we need to recognize the progressive revelation, the covenantal theology of Old Covenant and New Te Covenant. I'm not disputing that. But this admonition to love like Jesus, well, let's go to the New Testament as well as we think about the Old. Maybe our young pastor friend would do well to consider this, and this comes from the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, as for the murderers and the sexually immoral, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death, close quote. And do you know who said that? He identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Closes out the Bible by saying, but as for the cowardly murderers, sexually immoral, their portion is in the lake of fire that burns, the lake of sulfur, the second death, Alpha and Omega, a.k.a. Jesus. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.